This podcast is a production of Queen's Public Television in New York City. Visit us on the web at qptv.org. Hey, I'm Mark Bessino, and this is Queen's Creative. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Queen's Creative Podcast coming to you from Queen's Public Television in New York City. This episode is going to be very cool. On today's pod, I welcome singer-songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, composer, Grammy winner, and Queens-born Danny Weinkoff. Widely known for his 20-plus year and counting run as bass player for indie rock icons They Might Be Giants, Danny has also played on numerous records as a studio musician, working with such acclaimed artists as Fountains of Wayne and David Mead. As a songwriter and composer, in addition to writing for They Might Be Giants, Danny has crafted tons of music for film, television, and advertising, all while writing and recording his own very cool brand of children's music as a solo artist. Listen in on this episode as Danny and I discuss his history with the Giants, what it's like to win a Grammy, his work at family music, and much more. Then, after our chat, be sure and stick around as Danny treats us to one of his cool original tunes. All right, let's jump right into my conversation from a few months back with the super talented Mr. Danny Weinkopf. Hey, Danny, welcome to Queen's Creative. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Really uh, great to have you on the pod. Hey, thank you, Mark, man. It's, uh, it's great to do it, um, and I'm happy to be talking to you. Cool, cool. So, hey, look, I thought we'd dive right into the deep end <laughs> and talk about your work with They Might Be Giants. Um, you know, you've been playing bass and writing songs for that band since the late 90s, and it seems like, you know, it's been an incredible ride. Um, can you tell us a little about what that experience has been like for you? Uh, sure. Um, it, it's funny, you know, you're saying it's an incredible ride just before um, we, you know, we just got this call. You called me now. Um, uh, I was speaking at dinner with my wife and a good friend of mine and, and, and relaying a, a, a story about us being on tour. And it, it just made me think like, oh, I got to do an interview. And there's <laughs> so many things I could talk about. I bet. I bet. There's really so many. I mean, you know, from to just hit the highlights, like, you know, we were nominated three times for Grammys and I went to the Grammys twice. Um, and one of the two times that I was there, we won. That's right. And um, we're going to talk about that a bit later too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But it just, it, 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 you know, it was just a phenomenal, um, that was that, you know, we can talk more in detail about it later, but so that kind of thing, like recognition and the concert itself being great and, you know, seeing your heroes and those sort of things. Um, but then, um, there's lots of, you know, there were lots of super fun, um, amazing gigs and things like that. Like what I was talking to my, my family and friend about um, prior to this call was that uh, we had done a, a, we were on the Joko cruise, the Jonathan Colton cruise, and we were supposed to play a, a show in San Juan and there was like a hurricane <laughs> oh, in the, after several acts had played, but right before we were supposed to play. And they canceled our show and had to, you know, like sort of rescue our gear, <laughs> and shut everything down and send people back to the ship. And uh, we wound up doing the show on the ship, but had to leave the ship by midnight because some of us were leaving the, we were not continuing on with the cruise mm -hmm. and there were all kinds of regulations and international things. And we were under penalty of like, it, it, there were so many circumstances that were happening. It, it felt like we were in like the most exciting James Bond movie ever or something. <laughs> and and that was just one day, one game. Right, that's and, just one. And, you know, it was so memorable and so much fun and so exciting. And 
Um, you know, we played at Centennial Park for like 60,000 people. Oh, man. During a time where we had uh, a reporter from the New Yorker magazine on tour with us, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Azarad, um, who wrote oh, sure. a you know, famous book on, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain, et cetera. He was with us and he's a musician and he's a fun guy. And so, you know, we walk out on stage and 60,000 people are cheering and he's on stage with us to see what it feels like. And, you know, like yeah. moments like that, I just, you know, I, I took the time to like be in the moment and look around and think like, wow, this really is something. That's cool that you did that. Cause a lot of times it just goes by you and you don't, you know, you're right, not in, right. in the yeah. moment. I'm sure there were so many things that other guys in the band would remember that I don't remember just because I was, you know, too busy worrying about what I was playing or whatever, <laughs> right. whatever it was. But, um, you know, um, the, the one, the main thing that I have to say is um, I've been super fortunate, not in only that, they might be giants is a successful band and has had longevity um sort of in an outlier kind of way they they've forged a career that you know i don't i think very few bands have done true in the way that they have but um that the personalities involved the the two johns and dan miller and marty beller and i the way that we all get along and respect each other um and work together is really um it's remarkable. I've been, you know, I played with other bands and worked with other people and there are a lot of people that I like and love and, and that sort of thing. But, but this is, it's a, it was an outstanding uh, just stroke of luck that, that I wound up with, with these people um, and got to be, you know, working with them for all this time. Um, Well, you can't belittle your talents either. I mean, you know, you're there for a reason. I know, I know, you know, I, I I hope I, you know, that I deserve to be there, but I, I just, you know, it's, um, these guys are remarkable talents and and like brilliant guys and and including not just John and John but Dan and Marty they're composers they write for television they write right. songs they play their instruments well they're you know like genuinely gentlemen um it's not there's it's not like sex drugs and rock and roll where they might be giants as many people might guess um it is a very civilized and um rewarding artistic uh, group of people to be with. Um, so, you know, it, it, the overall um, feeling that I have looking back at, at the careers, there's, there were lots of amazing fun, you know, we did Conan O'Brien 13 times or something. <laughs> That's we, crazy. We, you know, we, That's we did all, many of the other late night shows and blues clues and like kids shows and, all, and had songs on television and, and all kinds of things. But the, the, the overarching, um, uh, uh, feeling I have is just like of gratitude to, to, you know, I know that I'm going to be going back on tour with those guys in the fall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I guess you're aware, but maybe some of the people aren't aware that, you know, we started to tour for the first time in 27 months, just about a month ago or so in June. And after the first show, uh, John Flansburg was in a terrible car accident. That's right. yeah. Yeah. He broke seven of his ribs, wound up in the hospital. So he's still recovering. But the plan is that we will resume our touring in, in August and, and it'll be that much more um, sort of uh, celebratory sure. when we can get back on stage because it's been, now it's been 29 months yeah. and Flansy's with us. You know, there were right. moments where I was getting texts that night where I knew he was in a terrible car accident and had to be pulled from the car, but oh, I man. didn't know the extent of it. And it's you scary. Know, we were, I was so grateful to learn that he was okay. So... Um, yeah, there's that. <laughs> right, right, for sure. That's that's a whole nother the personal side of it yeah. too. I mean, you know, aside from the professional side. Right. And and because I've played with They Might Be Giants, it's opened other doors and 
it enabled me to have a career um, writing jingles and uh, writing music for television and then writing my own children's records. And I have, you know, like six albums out under my own name. But I started doing that with They Might Be Giants um, and probably wouldn't have ever gotten into it had I not done it with them first. So, you know, I owe a lot to those guys. Now, I wanted to rewind a little bit and go back to the very beginning. Uh, how does little Danny Weinkoff, born in Flushing Hospital, as he told me uh, before the interview, um, how, how does he find his way to music? It was little Daniel Stephen Weinkoff. <laughs> little yes. Daniel my, Stephen. My father's, name is, my father's name is Stephen, and uh, he gave uh, me and both of my brothers the middle name Stephen. <laughs> cool. So we're all, we're all Stephen nice. uh, in the middle. But um, uh, yeah, I was born in Flushing. Um, I later lived in Astoria, and then I lived in Auburndale. Mm-hmm. Um, and living in Auburndale was one of the best places I've ever lived. But um, um, how did I get started with the music? Yeah, um, yeah. That's the question. Okay, um, for me, uh, you know, it was, uh, I guess, AM radio. Mm-hmm. Like WABC was the radio oh, station man, that, that was played a lot when I was a kid. Yep, I remember Imus, Imus, I think, was on the station at that point. Like Dan Ingram, um, those guys, like uh, right, exactly, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and my mom worked in a store called Sam Goodies. Oh, which sure. I don't know if they have anymore today. No, I think they're gone. Yeah, it was yeah. a record store, but it was a record store that sold sheet music That's and right. a few different instruments, guitars and drums and things. I bought a guitar from Sam Goody, I think, back in like their early eighties. <laughs> there you go. Wow. So my mom worked in Sam Goody. So you know, occasionally she'd, you know, I'd go, I'd go to see her work and look around the store and stuff. And I remember, you know, from hearing AM radio and just you know, being alive in the world, I remember really having an affinity for the Beatles. To me, they stood out like, I loved, I liked other songs, but when I heard them, I was like, wow, I really, really love this. Mm -hmm. So I was in her store one day and uh, there was like a magazine rack and one of the magazines had Paul McCartney on the cover. So I asked my mom if I could get the magazine and then I read the magazine and in that magazine, it it stated that uh, at the time they recommended that uh, or, or made maybe a list of the best of the Beatles and, and they put Sgt. Pepper's at the top. Mm-hmm. So I then proceeded to get Sgt. Pepper's um, and I've been a fan, you know, ever since. Um, so that, you know, that and, you know, um, school, you know, public school. I went to public school. I played the trumpet in third grade. I had a, a, a pretty good general music teacher that, you know, recruited me to do like the school plays and stuff, which I, I probably would not have volunteered to do. I didn't really have any interest in acting or anything, but she wanted me to get up there and sing. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, that, uh, you know, helped me learn about reading music and, and, and rhythms and things. And then, you know, my mom having access to, to records, um, you know, just, I didn't, I didn't buy a ton of records. I didn't really have much money, but I did have exposure to it. Um, so, yeah, so that was it. Um, wow. And then, you know, the radio. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I remember that yeah, too, man. Yeah. That the AM radio thing was like a big a big thing because um what I remember about it as a kid was that especially that station too is that they they like played everything. They would play like uh you know, they would play like a a cheap trick song like I want you to want me next to like an I don't know, like a like an ABBA track or something. It was a, there was always sure. like, it was like hard rock or or and then I remember they would play like a Genesis track or something. It was like it was just there was yep. no sort of uh, you know 
uh, genre-specific radio. It was just like whatever was cool, whatever they thought it's was funny. good. Yeah. You know? the, the thing that I, I remember is hearing um, Stairway to Heaven and then Helen Reddy. <laughs> right. That's even a better example. It's even a better example. And I, and I remember saying. thinking, like, I knew my mom liked the Helen Reddy song, and I just thought, like, wow, that that other song was really long. It had such a cool guitar solo. <laughs> solo now we're middle. listening right. to the stuff mom likes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it was just like it's that. Funny. It was great. And it's and it's funny that really, I think that speaks to the kind of music that both you and I make is, uh, you know, like uh, it's informed by that. You know, it's informed yeah, by sure. that for that, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so now I want to jump a little further down the timeline. Um, in 1997, you're in a band called Lincoln. Uh, right. with current Giants guitarist Dan Miller you mentioned before. Um, yep. You guys get signed to Polygram. You release an album. You guys hit the road, opening for folks like Susanna Hoffs, Marcy Playground, and They Might Be Giants. Um, and then Lincoln kind of prematurely falls apart, right? Like, what's the story behind that band? I was I was curious to ask you about that. Huh, okay. Um. Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it prematurely fell, fell apart. Maybe from the outside it seemed that way. But... um. Yeah, you know, just to step back a little bit, that that, uh, and I think this may um, overlap the next question, but um, that time period where I was playing with Lincoln happened to be like a very, very exciting time for me in New York City, um, and the um, my memory of the chronology of events is is not, I'm not great with that, but but it seems to me around the same time. I was doing recording with Lincoln, but then recording with Fountains of Wayne, and then Fountains of Wayne asked me to tour with them, but then Mike Viola asked me to tour with him, so I went and toured with him, and then opened for They Might Be Giants with Mike Viola, and then the Lincoln record came out, and I went on tour with them, opening for They Might Be Giants, and there was a lot of overlap, um, um, and different, you know, with it within a few different bands, and it was really fun and really exciting. And you know, as you know yourself, the, the clubs there were lots of places to play. In the, like in the mid '90s, there were plenty of places to play downtown New York, and uh, lots of good bands. You know, um, and I remember just, you know, bouncing around from club to club, and 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 you know, and having a lot of gigs myself, and and just. It was just such a, 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 a such an exciting time, and like you know, now my son is twenty two and he's starting to write his own music, and a lot of those places that I really would love to show him and I would love for him to get to play in are gone. Yeah, um, unfortunately, and even including like Forty Eighth Street, where all the music shops were, that's gone too. And so you know, it's a different New York now. Um, I'm still excited for him to make music, and so is he. But it's it's it's, it's changed world. But um, Lincoln. Um, Lincoln, uh, my, the I'll give you the quick rundown of the story for, uh, from my perspective. There was a, uh, a fellow named Chris Temple who was a, a very talented singer and songwriter um, who put, took an ad in the Village Voice, um, which is a place, another thing that doesn't exist anymore, but that's where I met many, many of the people that I wound up working with, including Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne and, and right. Chris and, and, some, and Scott Class and other people. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, uh, Chris ran an ad in the Village Voice. I went to his apartment. I met him. I talked to him for a few minutes and I talked about like coming into a rehearsal studio to to play with him or something. And he handed me a tape. And I got in my car to drive away. And I started listening to the tape. And the voice that I was hearing singing 
didn't didn't make didn't make sense it, to me it didn't sound like it was coming out of the guy i had just spoken to so i turned my car around and and went and rang his doorbell again and said hey is this you in the recording right. and he said yeah and i said i, I want to be in this band <laughs> and i said i know we haven't played yet but i want to be in this band and right. he's like oh okay i like your enthusiasm whatever and i said yeah well yeah we're going to do this so then we got together and we played um and I helped him basically. I, I at first uh, there was a drummer named Gonzalo Martinez who later played with Marcy Playground and some other bands. He and I had played in a band with this uh, an artist named Nate Outerkirk. So Nate's band had sort of um, you know sort of passed its prime or whatever. And I asked Gonzalo to, to play with me with and Chris. So he joined Lincoln, and then we needed another person to round out the sound. And I had met uh, Dan Miller, so I asked Dan Miller to come and. And uh, and audition and then uh, and we had some uh, I won't mention the names but we had some guys who had played with some famous bands come and audition as the guitar player and Dan was by far the best and so right. the four of us became a band we did a bunch of showcases which were really exciting again that time in New York was really fun we managed to get signed and, and they were throwing a lot of money at us in the recording studios and well not at us but at the people that own the recording studio <laughs> right. and the producer. Um, um, and we made a record and we toured a bunch. We toured with Marcy Playground. We toured with um, Team They Might Be Giants and, and uh, you know, a bunch of different things. But um, uh, it, it wasn't the, the chemistry between the four of us was very hard to put, to put four of us and a tour manager slash sound man in a van and travel all over the country following bands that were like on tour buses in hotels. Right, right. You know, when you're the guys in the van... You drive all day to get to the gig and then you play for a half hour and then you get back in the van and drive a little bit and get a, a crappy hotel and then wake up the next day and drive and hope you get to sound check on time. On time, right. While the other, you know, the main band gets in their bus and sleeps while they're driving. Right. You know, so it's it, it, it can be really grueling. Um, and I think Chris especially just, he, he was really unhappy on tour. Um, so... Um, it, it got more and more tense um, until finally Dan Miller decided he had had enough and he left the tour uh, when we were in North Carolina one day and just got his stuff and we, we played tennis in a parking lot and he got on the plane and went home and then the three of us finished the tour. Um, and then uh, around that time I had been subbing in They Might Be Giants for a bass player named Hal Cragen who also played with Iggy Pop. Um, and he... Iggy was needing him for gigs. So I would sub for him and they might be giants. And then uh, I showed up for a gig in Boston and, and John Flansburg came up to me before the show and said, hey, you know, instead of being the sub, would you like to be the guy in the band? Wow. And I said, um, of course I would, but I don't want to steal Hal's gig. He asked me to sub for him. He's a great guy and a great bass player. Like, And, and, and Flans was like, no, 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 it's okay. I've already talked to him about it you know, he's okay with it. And he realizes he can't do both gigs. We want you. And, and, you know, and then I, I continued with, they might be giants and got, I got Dan Miller into that band about a month later. <laughs> so, cool. Um, cool. Yeah. Interesting, man. That's, that's really, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was curious about, about Lincoln and, and that whole thing. Yeah. Just, uh, it, it's unfortunate. You know, I, I, I listened to the one record we made and I remember the gigs and, uh, you know, we used to play no matter who we were opening for. It seemed we would, people would not know who we were. And by the end of our set, we would have won them over. 
and we'd be yeah. selling CDs and and it was that that's a that's a very hard thing to do in an opening band for sure and also very rewarding you know when you when you realize you you've got them and they didn't know yeah. you from Adam when they walked in the room it's it's a great feeling so there was a lot of that but then there was also the reality that like you know we can't be at each other's throats in in these close <laughs> right. quarters all the time it's just not Nobody can live like that. So Yeah, nobody can. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Something had to give. Yeah, yeah. Now, sticking with that mid-90s time period for a minute, and you talked a little bit about this um, before, um, aside from your own band, Lincoln, during that stretch, you were pretty busy working live and in the studio with some great musicians and bands, like you mentioned, like Fountains of Wayne, Candy Butchers, David Mead. Um in a sense, you were sort of, for me, it seemed like you were kicking off the beginnings of your sort of session slash support musician, uh, you know, career. Now, how did you get involved in that? You touched on it a little bit, but how did you get involved in that kind of work specifically? Like, was that something that was intentional for you or it sort of sounded like it just sort of happened from what you were talking about before? But I was just curious if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was intentional. I think my intention at the time was to um, was to actually be in a band, to be part of something that I was considered, a, you know, an actual band member, like a band like REM or mm-hmm. or something like that, where um, everybody contributes and 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 that sort of thing. So, um, you know, although it, it did wind up that I, you know, ultimately became a you know a sideman that writes occasionally for They Might Be Giants, um, it wasn't. I didn't you know, I wasn't thinking myself first, like, oh, I'm like a, you know, a virtuoso bass player and I'm going to like do that. It was more like, I feel like I'm a musical person mm-hmm. and I happen to play the bass. And if I get with the right guys and we have the same sort of um, understanding of music and, and um, you know, maybe we can come up with something that's going to be, you know, that people want to hear that and that we find rewarding. So it was more, you know, coming from that um, place at that time, like, you know, with Lincoln, you know, although Chris did write the songs, it did very much feel like a band. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I don't know, like contractually, how it was would have. You know, I don't think it would have ended up that way, unfortunately. But the way that we worked was, you know, we did the the players had a huge amount of input in the way the record sounded and the way the live gig sounded and that sort of thing. Right. Um, it was collaborative. Yeah. Oh, extreme. Like, right. yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, and you know, playing with TMEG is, is collaborative in that way sure. as well, but. It seems like the best of both worlds in a sense with, with the giants, because it's sort of like you're, you're, you could say, yes, maybe you're a sideman technically, but you're also a big part of that band. Right. Yeah. I'm a sideman, but I've been a sideman for this band for 24 years or <laughs> something. Right. So, right. you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 the, there's no revolving door of, of uh, other players, right. um, you know, waiting to take my gig or something. Yeah. Right. It's a band. Yeah. Yeah. So in the nineties, you know, I was, I was looking to, to, to find the right, the right people that I would, you know, sort of go on tour with and, and continue to make records with and stuff. I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm like a mercenary guy and there's, you know, if I work hard, I can, you know, make X amount of money if I play with this many bands or that sort of thing. It was more like, let me find the band. Um, but just because of the way the downtown scene was and the clubs and stuff, I, you know, I just kept bumping into the same people. I, you know, I, I answered a Village Voice ad and I and went to to meet the band and it was Adam Schlesinger and Andy Chase and Dominique Duran from Ivy. Right. And we bonded, but then 
they wound up, instead of using a bass player, they got Mike Viola to play guitar with them. So I went to see them play a show because I was still friendly with them, even though I didn't get the gig. And Mike opened for them with Todd playing Candy Butchers. And I immediately went up to Mike and said, if you guys ever add a bass player to this band, please think of me. And then, uh, you know, a Village Voice came, ad came out, you know, months later after I'd seen Mike and Todd play numerous times and they were looking for a bass player. And I showed up and wound up getting the gig with them. And, and you know, and- You were great in that band, man, for sure. It was fantastic. That was, uh, that was, that was a, such a fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, and then, and you know, and so then, but also, you know, Adam knew of me then and saw me play with Candy Butchers and, and Fountains came around and, and he invited me to play with them. And so it was just him and Chris. And he asked me to come in. For that first record, Yeah, the right? first record was just me, him and Chris in a room. Um, and everything happened very, very quickly. Um, uh, you know, so it-, it uh, Now he was playing drums, right? Ad, yeah, was, out, of, out of necessity. <laughs> Basically he and Chris, you know, he and Chris were, um, they, Adam, I, I think, you know, Chris had written a couple of songs like Radiation Vibe and, and uh, you know, a couple of songs like that. And Adam had this, this idea like, hey, you know, we're listening to some of these other bands, this band Weezer and, and, and some other things. And I think if we, you know, like got Marshall Stacks and, you know, sort of put our <laughs> tongues further in our cheeks, we could do something that's really melodic pop, but that would sort of, you know, grab the attention of people these days, that sort of thing. And that was sort of the mindset. And so we went in, you know, like they, they literally sat in, in the radio bar and like made up joke titles for songs and then proceeded <laughs> to write the lyrics for the joke titles. And then... You know, we we got in a uh, you know we got in a rehearsal room one day and recorded four songs in the studio, and then Adam came back to me a few weeks later. He's like, "Listen, we got an offer. Do you want to finish the record with us?" <laughs> wow. I was like, "Okay, <laughs> you know, like sure, yeah, yeah." So it it really did. Um, but I think that was part of the charm of it was they 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 didn't let themselves uh, overthink it or make it too precious. Right, and even right. you know, with the approach to the bass, we we spoke about it before we even started recording, and it was like. I was, you know, I wanted to be as simple as I could and just kind of keep it steady so that Adam could play the drums to my bass playing. And then we could, mm -hmm. you know, layer the the overdubs on top of that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was like very strategic. Like this is going to be really straightforward and it's going to be about the songs and the melodies and, and um, you know, and, and it was really, really fun. And, and uh, you know, like I said, it just... Things were overlapping for me, so I remember we did the first four songs. They, they Matt, Adam managed to somehow convince people that we could make a full record. Went back, did a couple more rehearsals, and then we were went back in the studio like another day and a half. And I remember in the middle of one of the days, I, I was laying on the couch because I think I had the flu, and I said to Adam, "You know, this other band that I'm playing in is doing a video right now. Can I leave for like an hour?" and shoot the video and then come back and do the tracks later. And he was like, yeah, 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 go ahead. So there I am with the flu, like running to shoot a video with another band and then going back and finishing the Fountains record. And, uh, you know, it just, it was wow. exciting and fun. And, and um, yeah, it was definitely a good time, uh, you know, in New York. Yeah, and it yeah. seemed like a sort of yeah. a hotbed of a lot of, a lot of great music yeah, yeah so that's interesting so it was it wasn't sort of intentional it just no no yeah yeah I, I didn't i didn't i don't think i had the confidence to think that oh i i, I could be a session musician and I, I don't think i you know i i really didn't start playing the bass till i was like 23 years old so really wow 
uh, yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't have a lot of time under my belt. So I didn't, I just sort of thought of myself more as like, I have a good musical ear, I think. And I'm getting better and better with the bass as I, you know, spend more time doing it. So, you know, it was more that, like I said before, the attitude of like, let me find, a, you know, some like-minded musicians and see what I can do. Right, right. No, it makes sense, man. To- totally makes sense. Um, so I wanted to jump forward a little bit from that time. Um, and I thought we'd touch uh, on uh, 2009, They Might Be Giants takes home the Grammy, and you, you touched on this a little earlier, for Best Children's Album. And that was for uh, Here Come the One Two Threes, which featured the song number two that you wrote and sang. Right. Um, now, I have to stop everything right here and, and just ask you, how does it feel to actually win a Grammy? You know, that's, uh, I'm really curious about that. I, the, the many, you know, years have passed now, so I've had a little more time to think about it. At the time, it was really exciting um, in a kind of surprising way. Like, um, you know, I, 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 when I see the Oscars or the, or the, you know, other award show, Golden Globes or the, or the Grammys or whatever, you know, if you're in the industry at all, you realize there's a lot of politics involved and, you know, if you have a big, uh, you know, uh, company behind you, whether it's a record company or a studio or whatever, then you're going to get way more pitches and, and more people that, that might potentially vote for you and that sort of thing. And it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily come down to quality. It, it really doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's that reality of it, I think. Um, but having said that, being there in the moment and hearing you know, They Might Be Giants announced to win the album and having my wife there with me and the, my bandmates who I loved um, and their, you know, significant others. It, it was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling. You know, we uh, we were happy to win it. And, and um, th- th- that the, the time that we won, you know, again, we, we went a couple of times, but the time that we won, Stevie Wonder played that night. Wow. He is one of my all-time greatest heroes. And you know, I was like at eye level where I was sitting in the audience from Stevie Wonder was like, a, right. and he played twice. So he played earlier in the, in the evening with the Jonas Brothers, which was a bizarre combination, but he played <laughs> to end the show. So he's ending the Grammys and my wife and I are standing there like sort of still glowing and hugging each other. And the camera panned to us for like a full eight seconds. So on the national broadcast, there was my wife and I standing, smiling. And so people were texting me. You know, I'm at the Grammys and I'm getting texts from my friends. I'm looking at you on TV right now, you know? So like, think, that's ridiculous. Who cares? But it, in the moment, it was really fun and really exciting. And No, that's great. And, um, you know, and and uh, between the, the the couple of Grammys that we went to, I saw Stevie Wonder and Al Green and Radiohead and U2 and Coldplay and Adele and Jay-Z and... Um, you know, like that list goes on and on. B.B. King wow. and and like just so many people whose music I admired um, were part of the show. And then, you know, with the like the um, the night before they have an awards for um, Lifetime Achievement. Mm-hmm. And one of the times the Four Tops won. And I love the Four Tops, man. You know, that, that some of that singing kills me. I feel like that's what a man sounds like, you know, <laughs> and Bernadette, you know, that kind of thing. It's just like right. so raw and real and and yeah. A beautiful, you know, and and some, you know, several of the the original members had passed. So the, the the gentleman that was accepting the award, he was literally tearing up, you know, at that stage of his life. He was an older man mm-hmm. to be recognized. And to be recognized, and and 
I was really touched and, and I was happy to be, and this is like, an, it's the night before and the television cameras are not there and it's a smaller venue and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And I thought like, this is fantastic. This guy deserves the credit. He de deserves the acknowledgement. Right. And, you know, and there were other artists too that were there. Roy Haynes, the famous jazz drummer was acknowledged and, mm -hmm. and people like that. I thought like, this is really, this is not what I thought it might be. You know, I ran into Charlie Hayden, the bass player. Mm -hmm. They have like the ceremony where they give you all these, they give you a medal if you're nominated mm -hmm. and then they take pictures of you and there's like a buffet and whatever. And, and I'm walking around and I, and I almost bumped into Charlie Hayden <laughs> and I saw him and said, I just, you know, it's like, man, I've been listening to you on records for, for years and years and years. And I'm, you know, I'm congrat, thank God you're here that you're nominated. Right. And I, it probably doesn't even matter because, you know, I'm sure you're recognized all over the world, but I'm thrilled to meet you and thank you for everything. And, you know, he just laughed. He was like, you know, that's, <laughs> he was very humble. And um, yeah, I mean, aside from winning, it just sounds like winning a Grammy, it just sounds like the experience alone was just amazing. Yeah, we're, you know, I mean, they can, they can, I can put it in a bio that I, I won a Grammy, but the, the rest of it was really like, it was really something. It was, um, that's the real yeah, the real. yeah. The memories that my wife and I have together. Right. Yeah. You know, I actually, since I've been making the children's albums myself, I actually tried a couple of times to see if I could, you know, get myself in the running for the nomination as a, you know, an absolutely independent artist, which is, you know, nearly mm -hmm. impossible. But I did push for it Tough. just because my daughter wants to go. <laughs> and when we went the first time, it's a good, it's a good she reason. said, Daddy, if you ever go again, you have to bring me. And I said, Okay, honey. And then we went again. And I did not bring her. Oh man! And she, she still to this day is like, you owe me, you owe me one. You got it. You have to be nominated again and bring me. I don't care if you win. I want to go with you to the. <laughs> so you know, it, you're a young in my man. heart of hearts. I want to go back with my daughter. You got the time. You could. It can happen. Yeah. Well, it can. Well, it can certainly we'll happen. See, but um, you know, it's it's uh, <laughs> that would be something. But it's not. It's not that important. It's you know. Right, it's an amazing experience. It sounds like overall, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was thrilling and and fun, and um, you know, and then we made a, the record that we thought was the best children's record we ever made, and we didn't win. <laughs> so you know, that, yeah, it's a lot of politics. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we, the, you know, that time, that time, um, um, Pete Seeger was was you know also up for the same award, and he had turned ninety. Mm -hmm. And he made a record with, they made a record with a bunch of children singing some of his songs. And there, I, you know, I think the record's probably great. I don't know. But, um, you know, he deserved it. He's an American icon. You know, it's like, of course, give him as many awards as you can. Sure. I was like, okay, you know, he's, we, we all knew when we were going there. We're like, it's Pete Seeger. I, I voted for him, you know, like. It's whatever. So yeah, it's <laughs> if you're going to lose, you lose to Pete Seeger. You're probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I I, I thought we'd switch gears a little bit now and uh, talk a little bit about your parallel career as a composer for film and television and advertising. Um, now, in doing that work, you've created music for a wide range of clients like Dunkin' Donuts, Sesame Street, MTV, CBS Sports. The list goes on and on. Um, could you explain to folks a little about the creative process behind that kind of work? Like, you know, how you actually go about writing music for picture? Well, a lot of the work that I've done um, is, it is to picture, but it's not the same as like, a, um, like film scoring would be. Not, not, it's not to the same degree. Like mm -hmm. um, film scoring can be a little more specific where you would have um, thematic uh, motifs that would apply to like characters, that sort of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and um, recurring, recurring kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yes, and also um, it, it might be really more specifically to the the action on camera and, and that sort of thing. A lot of the stuff that I've done is either you know a thirty second commercial or a sixty second commercial or um, uh, music for a reality show or things like that, where or sports shows where it's really about creating a mood mm-hmm. with like an arc. So, you know, the, the beginning of the piece is starting softer and it has to build and has to get tense and then, you know, come to a crescendo because, you know, the right. football players are going to get on the field and, and bash their helmets together. <laughs> um, so, you know what I mean? So the, it's, 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 it's like a very smaller version of what a, a, a full-on film composer would do, which is, you know, Marty and Dan do full-on film composing. So they're, you know, they, they get into that world as well. I haven't, um, I haven't really done uh, that kind of work, but I've done the other work. Um, and you know, a lot of times it's, it's, um, they'll, uh, the, whoever is producing the, 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 the video part of it, whether it's a commercial or if it's a television show or something, they'll have a temp track. They'll have some kind of, mm-hmm. of music in place that they think works for the visuals for whatever reason, maybe it's the mood of the music and the tempo, um, other times they won't, and they'll just say, um, you know, we need something that's very bright and poppy, and that says sunshine and oranges. <laughs> right. And it might not be a commercial for oranges, but that's what—that's the vibe they want. That's the, the vibe. And then you have for. to interpret. Okay, this person says they want sunshine and oranges. Do they mean the Beach Boys' "Sunshine and Oranges"? Do they mean like a techno thing? So then you may ask more questions and get a little more direction. Sometimes you write a piece of music that you think is perfect for what they described. And you send it to them and they say, oh, no, 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 not not like this because we want, you know, something else. And then you feel like, well, mm-hmm. you should have said that in the first place, but okay. And then you're <laughs> right. back to, you know, you start all over. Um, so it, it takes a tough skin, I have to say. Um, as, you know, one of my friends who uh, had been doing it longer than I did one time said to me very wisely, like, you have to pre- be prepared, like in the jingle business, his thing was like, be prepared to send in 30 tracks and for every 30 tracks, you win one. Right. Wow. And if you can, if you can have that mindset, like it's okay, you sent it, it's gone. Don't, don't worry about it. If you get the call back again, that they're going to use it. Great. But if not, it's just another piece of music you wrote and it's okay. No, no expectations. Uh, it, right. 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 It, it helped a lot to, um, you know, I was lucky like the first couple of times I wrote the very first jingle I wrote, I think was for a Mercedes Benz spot. Um, and I did a version of the song, uh, uh, got the world on a string, which was made famous by Sinatra and was written by Harold Arlen and these Mm -hmm. really famous writers. And I had no idea who they were or what the song was. I just heard the original and I wrote a completely different song and used some of the lyrics and it wound up becoming a Mercedes Benz commercial. And I thought like, oh, great. This is, this is excellent. I'll do this all the time. I'm (laughs) going to be rich. all the time. Right. But no problem. Um, I soon found out that, you know, I was really fortunate that that first one went national and was, you know, it was a, a nice spot. And, it, you know, it, it probably took another four or five, ten tries to get another spot that went through. And maybe it wasn't quite as big of a commercial. So mm-hmm. um, it takes, you know, I, I've had friends that are really great songwriters and, and um, talented people that just knew, like, after one or two attempts that it was not for them. They just, they right. were like, I don't like that feeling of rejection Rejection when I know that I've put in good work. Yeah, that's certainly an element. I've done a little bit of it off and on. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I I kind of, you know, put put myself in that camp of... Uh, not not the not having the not about the the thin skin so much is for me it was 
which you could probably speak more to uh, the the sort of quick turnaround times. You oh know, my that gosh! Was yeah, the crazy. I mean, maybe you could speak a little bit about that because for me, that's that was sort of after a while. That was sort of the deal breaker for me. I was like, okay, I'm I have to like you know write and record a song in 24 hours. You know, stay up all night. Basically, uh, they right. want something that sounds like you know like a record, and um, and then you might not get it. Right. <laughs> I, I I think that that actually adds to the whole. Uh, being able to be accepting of it. If, you know, somebody mm-hmm. is really True. like, hey, we want this thing, but you're the last call. The video is done. It's been edited. We want it on the air on Monday. It's Saturday, mm-hmm. right? And so you can start working Saturday night and all day into Sunday and send it to them and get comments and come back and change it and blah, blah, and have it delivered to them by Sunday night. Mm-hmm. So you're, like you said, you're staying up most of the night um, and you're working feverishly and as hard as you can and often like starting over and doing more work. And, and it's, it's really, really, it can be very intense. Um, sure. And so, um, you know, that does turn off a lot of people. And there, you know, I, I have a friend who does a lot of television and film work. He doesn't do commercials because commercials you know, tend to be the ones that really have the very quick turnaround. Right. Okay. And so he just, he flat out just, he doesn't like to say no to anything, but he does say no to those because he knows his style. He he doesn't think that quickly. He doesn't, he's not one of these person that can just like, you know, like that has the facility on a number of instruments to just being bang, 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 and be mm-hmm. creating, you know, he, he's a drummer that plays other instruments also. And so it takes him a little more time to get his ideas together. And he's like, that, right. that world is just not what I'm built for. So, but mm-hmm. he realized it pretty early on and just moved on. That's from good. It. Yeah, it's it's um it it can be uh it can be super um, <laughs> yeah uh yeah it, it can it, it can cause anxiety. Yeah, no. One of my friends actually wound up in the hospital. He was so oh, stressed about trying to get the deadlines done and thought he was having a heart attack. It turned out to just be anxiety, oh, but anxiety, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the the times that I did it, man, I I certainly. I could see that. It's just, you know, I was like, after a while, I was like, wow, okay, this is, yeah, this is probably like a, you know, a 20 a year old's game, probably, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. or, or, so, you know, there are guys that, you know, you know, these guys, there are guys that play uh, keyboards and car and guitar equally well, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. just like, they can sit and program drums, like just rapid fire. I, you know, I don't know what it is. They, it, it seems like they don't even have to think. Right. Those are the guys, you know what I mean? Because yeah, they yeah. can, they can actually in that deadline, they can give them three choices or something. Mm-hmm. They have the facility to sort of do it very, very quickly. Yeah, and they're not yeah. even just writing one track in the twenty-four hours and making it sound like a record. They're doing multiple tracks. They're so, doing yeah. like three. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you can't be a perfectionist either, even though you have to strive for perfection. So for somebody like myself who'll spend you know years on a record, it's like that. That's you know horrifying to me. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> that know? actually being doing doing that before I did, before I really started making my own children's records, that I think helped me um, be. Uh, you know, some of my friends are like, "Oh, you're so prolific with the children's music and stuff," and my feeling is just like. That's how I learned to be. I I I I, I can't sweat the little details, mm-hmm. and and I don't get precious about it. I just you do what I think is you know, uh, you know the best in that moment, and and keep moving on and keep going to the next song and stuff. So I was you know I've able in six years or seven years I put out six albums. So um, and played with the Giants and did the other you know, and I'm also a physical therapist and I have a family. So. Um, you know, I think being in the jingle world prepared me to to be able to do that. 
um, preparedy for sure. Yeah, just right, to, just right. to be to like, you know, let have go that, of that. A yeah, bit. To, yeah, to just know like it's good enough. It's you know keep going, keep going. You know, right, um, right. So now, now you mentioned re- releasing your own records. I wanted to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I thought we'd wrap things up by talking about your own personal work in children's music. Now, you know, separate from the Giants, you've released, as you mentioned, multiple albums in the family genre under your own name. And what I particularly love about your work, you know, personally, aside from it just being super tuneful, is that it's you know, it's obviously aimed at children, but it's smart. You know, like you never talk down to kids. And I'm thinking maybe because it's clever, adults seem to connect, you know, with the music as well. Like some examples of this philosophy that come to mind are like a tune like Hyperbole or the song Reason for It All on your latest release, Lullabies. Um can you talk a little about your sort of unique approach to making this kind of music? Um, sure. Um, and thanks for doing your homework. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do appreciate it. Um, I'm a fan, man. Yeah, so no, I, like, I appreciate okay. that you listen even to the newest stuff. Um, um, yeah, I don't know that it's unique to me, but I, I think that um, uh, my general attitude towards making that music is that p- part of it is that it, I do it because I enjoy it, mm-hmm. and I like I, playing with They Might Be Giants and getting on stage and singing a song like uh, "I'm a Paleontologist" or uh, "Where Do They Make Balloons" or something. One of my favorites too. Love. That I had song. never been. A, I'd never been a lead singer, right? So for me to get up on stage and be singing the lead on w- with their audience supporting me, and and the reaction of kids and and parents in the audience, that was like a just such a tremendous feeling, and I thought like, wow if I can do this on my own and have that mm-hmm. response, this is something that I want to do. So I enjoy the performing part of it, but then I, I want to enjoy the recording part of it. So I, and it, it's kind of, I feel like um, at one point where they might be giants, just to uh, a little, go off on a little tangent around 2000, we were working on the Malcolm in the middle television show. We were doing mm-hmm. all the incidental music for that show, but we were also recording our rock albums and we had started our first children's record, which was called No. Mm-hmm. And so we had a regular standing uh, schedule where we'd be in like Monday and Tuesdays of every week or something recording. Um, but it, there were so many things going on that it got to a point where we were showing up in the studio and we'd be recording numerous tracks all day. But, but we were realizing that like we'd do tracks and we didn't know as the musicians we didn't know if the song was intended for a kid's record, for the television, or for a rock record. <laughs> right. It was all a, a jumble of, of all the work that you were doing. It was so many different things. And the, the approach to the children's music was the same as if it was a, a, a rock album. We just wanted to make the songs sound as good as we could. We weren't thinking like, oh, this is for children. We need to be gentle. Or maybe we need to you know, use uh, toy instruments or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We really didn't change anything about setup or our approach to the, to the, to performing the music. The only thing that was really child specific were the lyrics. Right. Um, and even those, you know, with, when the, when the John started writing their songs, they weren't, they weren't really dumbing it down. They were just not using curse words um, <laughs> or, you know, or, or morbid thoughts or something. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I really liked that sort of approach and, and, you know, thought I would do my best. And I don't know that I did. I really feel like the Giants did it 
uh, full on. Like their the music on their children's records is is fantastic. If you took away the the lyrics, it it still to me sounds just as good as any other TMBG music or other bands music. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to keep that same approach for my music and write songs and melodies and and chord progressions and use instruments that I like and enjoy playing. And I have, you know, I, I like you, I have a, a real soft spot in my heart for pop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sure. whether it's, whether it's Beatle type pop or pop from the seventies or, or even contemporary pop, I love a really good melody and I love mm-hmm. a pop song. I love a hook. So, and that's, that's evident in what you do in your music for sure. Yeah. It's, 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 it's joyful to me, for me to, 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 to write music like that. So, I try to have that approach. And actually, out, out of the six albums or so that I've uh, produced, one of them uh, called uh, Inside I Shine, I tried to write songs with maybe a slightly younger audience in mind. Because mm-hmm. you know some of the music out there for kids is like for preschool kids. True. I would say that the stuff that I write is more for elementary, uh, you know, maybe five or four to two, 10 or 11 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, let me see if I can write some stuff for the younger kids. And I, and I, and I wrote that album and I did my best to continue to keep the music, you know, not talking down to kids and keep the lyrics, not talking down to kids, but it was really, really hard for me to sort of do it like that. Mm -hmm. I feel much more comfortable just saying, all right, what's a topic that kids learn about? Okay. They like paleontology. They like dinosaurs. They you know, they need to learn about words. So I'm going to write a song about alliteration. Right. Um, and then I can learn about alliteration and then put it into the song. Or I can look up, you know, I can write a song about elephants for They Might Be Giants and look up facts about elephants that are actually based on, you know, elephants' lifespans and the way mm-hmm. that they travel and the way that they communicate and put that into a song. And um, so I'm learning as I'm constructing the song and then in hopes that when the child and the family or the teacher hear the song, they will in turn maybe be m- more curious and look into the topic and, and you know, they could maybe start that as like a, an intro to a lesson. Like here's a song about elephants. It talks about, you know, their tusks digging in the dirt and using for fighting. And then they communicate with infrasound waves through the ground. What is this all about? Let's, let's look into it more. And you could spend a whole half hour or 45 minute class talking about sure. elephants and, and the science behind it. So the, yeah, my, my feeling is like that can be an intro to, to a topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes it so much more fun and interesting to me if I can, if I work on topics that I find or I think that I would have enjoyed as a child. Right, right. That you think you would have found interesting and it's educational and it's fun. Yeah. And it's, you know, yeah. It's, and the hook would have grabbed me, you know, if I, if I heard, <laughs> right. you know, some of these songs, you know, like the Hyperbole, for example, that which is a song on my next to last, the penultimate release that I put out, which was uh, an album called Words. Um, it was shortly after Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne and Ivy and, and Broadway, et cetera. He had passed away from COVID. Right. Um, and, you know, I was deeply hurt by that. Adam and I had worked with Fountains of Wayne, but also with David Mead and a number of other situations. He even worked with They Might Be Giants at one point mm-hmm. with us. And um, he was an incredibly talented person and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a good friend and a funny person and super smart and all that. So he passed and... Um, I had already started working with the idea that I would make an album with word concepts. And, you know, I started to think about hyperbole. And then, you know, in writing the music for that song, I thought like, well, what if Fountains of Wayne did this song? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you probably could pick it up, especially if you listen to it now that I've revealed it. But, you know, there's in in the solo section of the, there's a nod to Stacy's mom. Right, right. There's a nod to Weezer. The beginning of the solo is like actually a Weezer melody. <laughs> and then, you know, the way the chords and 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 the, the modulation for the guitar solo, mm-hmm. it's there's some there's a lot of elements. Very Stacy's mom. Right. That are very sort of in my mind. Mm-hmm. Are some of the things that that Fountains of Wayne did really well, and it's a big pop song with big guitars and sure, um, and uh, nice harmonies on the chorus and that sort of thing that my son Kai um, actually sang. Um, so you know, in so many ways that was satisfying to me. I got to you know honor my friend in my own personal way, and write something write about something that was interesting to me, and and create something new. Um, you know. Um, so it, yeah, it, that it's a, it's a very satisfying part of um, you know the big picture of of my of my music life for sure for sure man that's great you know everything you say is very true you know about how you uh, sort of put these things together it's fun it's educational it's catchy you know going back to that AM radio Beatles. Uh, uh, you know, Stairway to Heaven, Helen Reddy, <laughs> you know, it's all in there, man. You know, uh, it's you can hear it. Um, but hey, man, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out. You know, absolutely. It was my pleasure. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, days of COVID now, everything seems to be remote, but I look forward to seeing you in person, Mark. Yeah, man, we really have to do that for sure, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll have a drink and toast to... Uh, to music and life. That's for sure. That's that yeah, that yeah. that's a that's a definite man. And uh, so much continued success to you, man. Likewise. Before we let you off the hook, you're going to do a song for us, right? Sure. And I, and I'll ask my son. My son Kai will will uh, be singing the harmonies on it since he did it on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, the song is called Hyperbole. It's a song we were just talking about from the album Words. Um, and we'll do a nice uh, acoustic version for you guys. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's get right to it. Here's Danny and Kai Weinkoff on Queen's Creative. I'd like to tell you something as a matter of course But right now I'm so hungry I could eat a horse My grandma stays so healthy, takes her vitamin pills That's why my dad keeps saying she's as old as the hills All these exaggerations, tell me what can they be When they are useful emphasis, that's hyperbole All these exaggerations, such a puzzle to me When they are used to make a point, that's hyperbole Hyperbole my friend ate so much pizza, asked him how does it fit? How does it fit? He told me that his stomach was a bottomless pit. Bottomless pit. When jumping in our garden like a couple of frogs. Couple of frogs. Till it started raining down like cats and dogs. All these exaggerations, tell me what can they be? When they are used for emphasis, that's hyperbole. All these exaggerations, such a puzzle to me When they are used to make a point, that's hyperbole Hyperbole, hyperbole
she's as sharp as a pin, as, as skinny as a toothpick, and as fast as the wind. As she looks around her backpack, man, that thing weighs a ton. But reading Harry Potter makes her shine like the sun. Harry Potter sun. All these exaggerations, tell me what can it be? When they are useful emphasis that's happily All these exaggerations such a puzzle to me When they are used to make a point that's happily All these exaggerations tell me what can they be When they are useful emphasis that's happily All these exaggerations such a puzzle to me when they are used to make a point that's hyperbole Hyperbole, hyperbole, hyperbole Thank you Big, big thanks to Danny Weinkoff for hanging at Queen's Creative and taking the time out to talk with us. To learn more about Danny and his work, visit dannyweinkauf.com. That's D-A-N-N-Y-W-E-I-N-K-A-U-F.com. All right, that just about does it for this episode of QC. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods, and please visit Queen's Public Television on the web at qptv.org. QPTV can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash queenspublictelevision and on Twitter and Instagram, we're at QPTV. The executive producer of Queen's Creative is Daniel J. Leone. Queen's Creative was produced, written, recorded, and mixed by yours truly. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Bacino. Until next time, see you folks. Mm-hmm.